Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is an authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So here we have in Romans 13 a clear indication that one of the institutions God has set up is that of government and really of the police force of that government to administer justice, to make sure that those that are law-abiding citizens are protected in their rights and those that want to take away the property or harm other individuals are punished. That's one of the roles of government. God set government up as a good institution to do those things. And as such, we as citizens owe our government respect and honor. We are to pray for our government, as Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We're to pay taxes, and we're to abide by the law. We owe our government um, obedience to the law, because this is how God has designed it for our good. Um, and so I wanted to start off there because we were talking last week about depravity and how it has um, implications for the way we set up government and laws and that sort of thing, but it also affects the way we live as individuals, how we relate to one another. We saw last week that when man fell, and we all fell with Adam, in the garden that has had implications for how the rest of history has gone. And we looked at it doctrinally by looking at the confession and what it said about Adam and Eve's sin, how they fell from being free and innocent moral beings into sin. And as a result, they became depraved. They became alienated. They became dead spiritually. And every inclination of the heart has an evil propensity to it. But God, in His mercy, not only provided a way of salvation through Christ and the coming of the Messiah, but He also gave us certain institutions and certain things to put a restraint on the amount of evil that we could perform. Our consciences. And even, you know, the most wicked have a conscience that sometimes bothers them, and gives them guilt, and it keeps them from sinning as much as they could. We also have the family, which is instituted to train and that sort of thing. And then we looked at the government and its agents. And then for the believer, he's given us the church. We looked at all those things last week. Then we talked about how Satan attacks those institutions. 
He hates God. He hates the things of God. And he hates man, particularly because we're made in his image. We're to reflect who God is. And if he can destroy that, then Satan thinks he's won the victory. Now, we know that he does not win in the end. But occasionally, a culture will succumb to his attacks. And any culture that changes the moral law and puts a law that's evil as what's right, any society that attacks the family in both marriages and parenthood, any society that attacks government, either from above or from beneath, with the government being tyrannical or the people being um, subversive to the government, these are satanic attacks. And that's kind of what we dealt with last week. So this week, I have it in two different, I went through those real quick. Um, We're going to look at what does this imply to how we as human beings see this in our institutions, especially government. Um, If we are indeed fallen creatures, how does this apply to how governments are set up? Does God give a certain... um, way of setting government up, or does he leave it to us, which ones are more ideal, or which ones reflect the moral order that God has instituted more than others. And so I wanted to start off with monarchy. Is monarchy the ideal government? To some extent, we have to say yes, right? After all, what does God present himself as? A king, right? Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he really is the epitome of a righteous ruler who is just and will administer justice in a perfect way. And certainly he does that today through his people, the church. He's the head of the church. He rules us perfectly. And one day when he returns again, and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth, and his kingdom will be of this earth, he will administer perfect justice and be righteous and the perfect king. So we do have a perfect monarch. But that goes with any monarchy. To some degree, the length that the monarchy is good depends on the individual that's monarch. If we have a king that mostly reflects God's moral law, then he's a good king, and the people rejoice. And we've had certain monarchs through history that we've often called the good or the great. I mean, you think about even in biblical history, David was a man after God's own heart, and yes, he had his failings, and it did cost the people at times, but by and large, he was a good king to the people of Israel, and they rejoiced to have David as king. You you had Cyrus, who was, I don't, necessarily think he was a believer perhaps he did acknowledge God at one time but God raised him up to be a savior for his people to to free them from bondage in Babylon and to restore them to their homeland of Judea Charlemagne was a good fairly good king in European history Alfred the Great these others are called the great because of their accomplishments their people enjoy their rule Though, given man's depravity, those same sort of rulers with absolute power can use that power for evil. 
their own selfish designs. We've seen this in monarchs of history too. In the Bible, Ahab. He was a fairly weak monarch, but he still had power. And he did everything according to the whims of his wicked wife, Jezebel. He wanted uh, that property. I think it was Nadab or... No. The name is slipping me all of a sudden. But the vineyard that he ends up um, having a lie spread about him that he was uh, subversive and all. He had him killed and he took the vineyard. He also let Jezebel bring in all the Baal worship and the sacrifice to, to the, the, the gods, Baal and Asherah. And it was just paganism run, run rampant. He raised up Elijah to go oppose all that. And yet... We, we know Jezebel and Ahab as being very evil monarchs. Nero, one of the early persecutors of the church. In fact, the first Roman emperor to actually persecute the church. Uh, he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome. And had Christians covered with pitch and lit them on flame um, to light his garden parties at night. And fed them to the lions and stuff. John... Um, if you remember King Richard, John was his brother who was in control while Richard was fighting the Crusades. But eventually John became king, and he was such a bad king that the nobles rose up in rebellion and made him side in the Magna Carta. So you have bad kings. This just goes to show you that monarchy is not necessarily a bad form of government, but it tends since most people tend toward their sin and selfishness and depravity to enhance the ability of an individual to pursue that depravity, to, to be evil, and to institute tyrannical government upon the people that they govern. A lot of times people think that, and this is a misconception, that when Israel asked for a king, that that came about as a surprise. That they were going along perfectly good under the judges, and they had Samuel as their leader, and yet then they just decided all of a sudden to go after a king of their own choosing. And they did do that to some degree from a human standpoint, but it did not surprise God. God already knew that the people of Israel were going to choose a king. In fact, in the books of Moses, he already planned for it and told them what to do. If you have your Bibles and you cannot see this, well, we're not there yet. Um, the next slide, I believe. And keep, just keep going. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, God says, Hey, when you go into the land and you desire a king like all the other nations, you may choose a king is what Moses tells the people. But this is how it should be. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you, who is not your brother, because at that time he would not be of the chosen people of God and he would not 
be bowing the knee to Jehovah, instead probably some pagan king. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He doesn't want him to acquire many horses or chariots because really they would have to go to Egypt to get the horses, right? And they were not to return to Egypt. But the second reason also is they were not to trust in the strength of their chariots or their horsemen. They were to trust and to depend upon the Lord for their victories over their enemies. And if they had all these horses and, and superior armies and all that, then their trust may be in their own army, their own strength, rather than in the army of the Lord. Now, God did have armies for the Israelites. He did tell them to train. In fact, David had his mighty men of war that did fight. However, their dependence was still not to be in their own strength, but in the Lord. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Now, what always struck me reading this text in Deuteronomy was the fact that this reflects one of the kings that Judah had. In fact, this third king, who was that? Solomon. What did he do? He acquired many horses and chariots. If you read that in, in the accounts of Solomon. He also acquired many wives. And what did they do to his heart? They turned it away from the Lord and instituted pagan worship in Israel. And he has acquired for himself much silver and gold. Now, to some extent, this is part of God's blessing because Solomon asked for wisdom, so he made him wealthy as well. But part of it was Solomon. It shows the tendency of any man when he departs from the ways of God to bring bad things upon his people, including the very blessings that God gave him turned into something bad. Notice this, though. What was the king to do? Verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. Again, to some extent, the way God set up Israel, it was to have a separation of, of the church of that day in the kingship. The king was not supposed to offer any sacrifices. The book that he had that was copied of the law was supposed to be approved by the Levitical priest to make sure it was, in fact, what Moses had written down for the people of Israel. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue in his kingdom, he and his children, in Israel. So God already knew that Israel was going to eventually have a monarchy one day. To keep that monarch living in the right way, though, he knew that that king would have to dedicate himself to the law, to the Bible, to the Word of God. If he learned these things, he learned to fear the Lord through the Word, then he would be a good king. And God set this up for his people. But also notice that when the Israelites did reject Samuel 
as being the ruler over them, God tells Samuel, hey, they're not rejecting you, Samuel. They are rejecting me, the Lord, as their ruler. And he gives them a warning about what kind of king they would end up with. Notice what 1 Samuel chapter 8 says. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give them to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And I think one of the reasons that Saul was chosen by God and by the people was because you want a king according to your desires? I'm going to give you a king just like you wanted. And Saul ended up departing from the ways of God and going after and being disobedient and really God withdrawing his, his spirit, spirit's influence on Saul's life. But then God said, this is the king, the way I wanted you to receive a king when he chose David and removed the throne from, from Saul and gave it to David. All right, so a monarchy. I think the, the, the lesson of all this is when it comes to human depravity, a monarch is as only as good as he is in following God. If God has chosen him and has redeemed his heart and is with him and his spirit abides in him, then he will be a good monarch. If he goes according to God's moral law, even if he's not a Christian per se, he may still be a just king and do things fairly right and be known in history as a good king. But a monarch can also be uh, known to be very evil because all that power rests in one individual. So what's the counter to that? Should we say democracy or republicanism? That is representative government where the people have power? Well, why is a monarchy bad? Because the monarch is bad, right? A democracy is not necessarily any better. Now, I do like democracy. I live in America. I'm not advocating we go back to having a king over us. But a democracy is only as good as the people that make up that democracy. If the people are evil, the rulers they select for themselves are going to be evil. And we, we can see that in, in history. All power vested in an individual is only as good as the monarch. But all power vested in the hands of the people is only as good as the virtues of the people. The founding fathers knew this when they were setting up the, the country. Even those that were not Christians had enough common grace, enough common sense that God had given them in, in rulership and governance to, to realize this. I want to read three quotes, and you will see this reflected. John Adams, our second president, 
said this, Republican governments, that is representative governments, could be supported only by pure religion or austere morals. Public virtue cannot exist in a nation without private virtue. And public virtue is the only foundation of republics. When the people lose their virtue, republican democracy loses its ability to institute law. Things will break down either into chaos or tyranny when people lose their virtue. Ben Franklin, who was himself a deist and not a Christian, said only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become more corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters, someone to institute a hard line of law and order. And the very people that want to break down the morality of our country because they want to exercise their freedoms to do anything, they are actually bringing about the very opposite of their aims by getting rid of morality as a restraint upon their passions, people will institute someone to make them abide sooner or later and will end up with a, a tyrant. And then the lengthy one I have on the next slide is James Madison, the writer of the Constitution, the father of the Constitution. Now this is a lengthy quote, but I think it's very important. I go on this great Republican principle or democratic principle, or government by the people principle, that the people will have virtue and intelligence to select men of virtue and wisdom. Is there no virtue among us? If there be not, we are in a wretched situation. No theoretical checks, no form of government can render us secure. To suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is a chimerical idea, something that is deceptive. If there, is, if there be sufficient virtue and intelligence in the community, it will be exercised in the selection of these men, so that we do not depend on their virtue or put confidence in our rulers, but in the people who are to choose them. Again, a democracy is only as good as the people making up that democracy, because they will choose rulers who are like them, who represent what they want. For this reason, the Founding Fathers designed America, at first, too weak. If you think about this, they were coming out from under King George, right? They perceived King George as a tyrant who were, were, would take away their rights and that sort of thing. So they wanted to design a government in which the individual or the state had more power. So they wrote the Articles of Confederation, our first sort of constitution for the government. But when they instituted it, they found out it didn't work very well. Because individuals and states going after their own self-interest threatened the, the stability and the unity of the country as a whole. For that reason, they knew if they continued under the Articles, it was going to fall apart. Why? Because we need a strong government because of the depravity of our own hearts. A government is instituted by God to keep our passions from causing 
a breakdown of law and order. And it looked like that's what we were headed to under the Articles of Confederation. So they wanted a more perfect union as the Constitution starts off. And so they designed the Constitution. But then they also knew that they did not want what? Too strong a government because what happens? People that are sinners end up in control. And if they have all the power, they will make laws for themselves and their self-interest. And this will be a burden to the people. It will be tyranny because of depravity. So the reason I'm going into this part of this lesson is not just to teach history. It's to show you that the Bible is true. And what the Bible presents is the ultimate reality. If we do not go according to the Bible, I don't care if it is our marriages, I don't care if it's our churches, I don't care if it is our governments, if we don't see man as who we are in the image of God and yet depraved, we're going to make huge mistakes. And I think we do that every time. James Madison and the Federalist paper number 51 says, but what is government itself but the greatest of all reflections of human nature? So government reflects who we are. If men were angels, that is, not fallen angels, if they were good angels, no government would be necessary because we'd all abide by the law. You need government because of what? We're sinners. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary because they would govern perfectly. In forming a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable government to control the governed and in the next place, oblige it to control itself. And so, yeah... The Founding Fathers, they were not perfect men. They didn't do everything perfectly. They made mistakes. But they had a good grasp of what the Bible taught about man. We are sinners. And if you put a, a sinner under everybody, he's going to sin. If you put a sinner over everybody, he's going to sin. So the best way to structure government, if we were to do it ourselves is to take this into account and take the ability to sin as much away from the government and the citizens as possible. Set up a government that's strong enough to govern the people, but a government that's divided with checks and balances enough and power that they don't become tyrannical in their sin. So that's the reason we have checks and balances. That's the reason we have division of power and we have the, the three branches of government and the division of power between the federal government and the state government is to keep our government from lording it over us in their sin and depravity. Um, again, the Constitution is not a perfect document, but I think it's one that has depravity of man in its mind because it acknowledges that men are not angels. We are not going to do the right thing. In fact, without some kind of checks and balances intact, in we tend to go toward the wrong. And institutions do this. I think it's remarkable 
that we have survived as a republic as long as we have under the Constitution given whom we are as people. And I think we see perhaps the beginnings of the end today. But the Constitution is the oldest Constitution still intact anywhere in the world. And I think it's the reason behind it. The reason it's still good is it's taken into consideration the depravity of man and and has enabled us to to set up a government with that intact. All right. Just a few minutes. Let's look at how this affects how we set up economics, how we set set up how we do business as a a nation uh, in in the world. Why does socialism or communism not work? And this has implications for us today, too, in our own country. It doesn't work because under it, it considers man what? Basically good. Or at least morally neutral. But the Bible tells us what about man? We're depraved. We operate from sinful inclinations and selfishness, ultimately. Those that have experimented with the idea that man is basically good actually have crumbled as societies. It sounds good on paper. If we all just shared everything and worked hard and did as much work as we possibly could, and then took what we needed from the common treasury of everyone, then that's the ideal world, isn't it? But it's a world that doesn't have us in it. Because we operate based on what? Our own self-interest, our own sinful inclinations. Now, God also has given us certain rights in the Bible... And one of them that we see a lot is property rights. Think about the Ten Commandments. We have two based on what? The right to own property. Thou shall not steal. What is inherent in that commandment? You have the right to your home. You have the right to your property. You have the right to the fruit of your hard works and and labor. In, in, the, in the world, right? And that's what God has given you. He's given you the ability to make a living. He's given you the ability to, to prosper and to buy stuff. Now, you can use all that incorrectly and sinfully. There's no doubt about that. But having property is not a bad thing. Also, when you take away property and free enterprise, the very opposite has an effect. You take away any self-interest for for hard work and the result is sloth and poverty. We talk about the communist countries. We don't have to go any further than our own country. When our first settlers came to Jamestown and Plymouth, they set up communal farms. And the people would go out and work. That was the idea. But some of them didn't want to work. They wanted to go off and do like the Spanish did 
in Central America or in South America and find wealth. And so they spent much of their time doing that instead of working. They were resting on the fact that their neighbor was going to go to the fields and work. Well, it came time for harvest and not enough food was being produced. And they went through a starving time. And so John Smith, who ended up in control of Jamestown, instituted a new rule for Jamestown. And it was one based on 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. Even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So if you don't work, you don't eat. Biblical principle. Why? Because that puts your own interest in to work. All right. I've already done the private property. But we also see hard work and investment as practices encouraged by the scriptures. The Proverbs are full of this. Proverbs 10.4. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. That's a good truth, isn't it? Now, understanding the Proverbs, those are general truths, not absolute truths, meaning that a person that worked hard could lose everything because of a drought or locusts or something like that. But generally speaking, those that work hard do get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. They prosper. Whereas those that are lazy and do not do work usually end up impoverished. Not all the time. There are hard workers that end up poor. Absolutely. But given the sinful condition of man, we are not in heaven. We live in a fallen world. No system devised by man is perfect. Free enterprise has its problems. We see this even in God's people in Israel, right? When they had property rights and they had um, the freedom to to pursue sales and um, commerce and all that for the good of, of their people... The prophets always were declaring, hey, you are taking advantage of those under you. The widow, the orphan. You need to protect their rights and not take it away. In our own country, in the latter part of the 19th century, our free enterprise enabled us to become one of the most prosperous countries on earth. We tapped into resources. We increased the wealth of the country as a whole. Yet... People formed monopolies and instituted unfair business practices and drove out competition. They sold goods to the public that were inferior. In fact, go ahead a few slides. Um, Right there. Has anybody ever collected antiques in here? Uh, Most of the old bottles are what? They're colored. They either have green or blue glass. That was on purpose initially because they could hide any impurity. Um, There were stories of people making horseradish, and they would have sawdust also in it. And Heinz is the first one to institute a clear bottle because he said, I make a superior product, and I want the public to know they can trust what I buy. And so that's the reason... Heinz took off as a company. But the principle is, even under capitalism, 
there were bad things being done. So what had to be done? That's the reason the government exists, to punish evildoers. Now go back, go back one slide. Go back one slide. I want well, yeah, go, I'm sorry. Right there, Jeremiah chapter 21, verse 12. O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute justice in the morning and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of your evil deeds. First of all, Jeremiah is speaking to whom? The king, right? Who has the government of Israel, of, of Judah? It's the house of David. What were they to do? To make sure that the free exercise of, of business and commerce did not oppress those who did not have power, right? So we've talked about the evils of socialism and how depravity completely goes against that as, as a theory. But capitalism is not a perfect institution either because we live in a fallen world. But the thing is, we live in a fallen world and there is no system that's going to get rid of sin. Um, go ahead to... The flaw of liberalism. The flaw of liberalism. As we study depravity and how it has implications for governmental institutions or society or families, as we saw last week, if we do not take into consideration depravity, we make all kinds of mistakes. For instance, if you assume that man is basically good and yet there are problems out there. What are those problems caused by? Conditions imposed on them, right? Because if they're inherently good, then all we need to do is have better education or, or more wealth. And so if the government could just get involved with this and give us a better education and institute the ability for everybody to have wealth, then our problems are going to go because we're basically good. But what has happened over the last century? We have pumped a lot of money into education. We have put, put a lot of money into the great society programs that Lyndon B. Johnson had come up with. And yet, have we alleviated all the problems that we ever had? Now, many of the places that we have poured this stuff into, the problems actually have gotten greater as a result, now, I'm not in this being political one way or the other. Ultimately, we are to, to help. We are to see that justice is done. We are to see all these things. Go to the Bible is true. Ultimately, what this proves, though, is the Bible is true when it says that men are sinners, that people are sinners. If we have any kind of um, government, if we have any kind of institution, we must take this into consideration, otherwise we fall flat on our faces. As a Christian and a teacher, I must hold to the clear doctrines of Scripture. 
any policy, if it's going to work, has to consider reality as it really is. And see, all this that I've done today was application of what we talked about last week. We looked at the, the doctrine of human depravity, how we all are sinners. We all tend toward our own sin and our own flesh. Even as Christians, we still struggle with this flesh that's left behind. And that's the reason we have the church. Part of the reason we have the church is to hold us accountable and also to encourage us to good works because God uses each each other in the church to help bring about sanctification, to help us go according to the Bible. So all evidence substantiates the claim that we're sinners. Thankfully, God in His grace has given us restraints to curb and contain humanity's sinful tendencies. We saw the conscience. Everyone has a conscience that tells us what's right and wrong. We see the family. We're to raise children, not with too much discipline, which becomes, to some extent, with the harshness and lack of love, it can become abuse, nor too little discipline, because then children do not learn to act as moral um, people in our society. And they think everything is about themselves if we do not raise them correctly. The government, the government is to institute law and order and justice and, and, and fairness in the law. And then the church exists for us as Christians. Thankfully, and I want to close with that slide there, governments are limited by God. First of all, they're created by God for our good and they have certain responsibilities. Look at Romans 13, verse 4 again. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. God uses government to judge those that commit lawless acts. But God himself holds a government accountable for being just. If they misuse justice, God will bring that government down. We saw the prophets and how they railed against the people of Israel for not administering justice correctly. John chapter 19, verse 10. So Pilate said to Jesus at his trial, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Our government has no authority unless God gives that government authority. It has no power unless God gives that power. And in the last verse, Daniel chapter 2, verse 21, God changes times and seasons, even over the matter of two days here in Texas. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. That's one reason we as Christians have no fear of our government. We may have an evil government that may come over us. But God is the one to set up kings. He's also the one to remove kings. We are under his sovereignty, ultimately. And we can rest in that. All right, let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that we have your word, and it is so trustworthy. Your word is truth, and it's your truth that sets us free. Help us to know that your commandments, they exist for our good, and true freedom can be found in Christ, because he frees us from the guilt that we've had, because we've all broken the law. But he also frees us to a new life of obedience to the law, not to earn your favor, but because you have displayed your favor upon us through Jesus. Help us to know that the commandments exist for our good, and you've also given us certain restraints upon our our sins and our desires and our passions, such as our consciences, our families, our governments, and our church. Lord, we thank you for these good gifts, and we just pray that will repent of our sins and grow ever closer to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.